0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. Make sure you subscribe to get every episode as soon as it's released. I'm Roman, And I'm Michael. This week, we look at whether we could be in an asset bubble. Many indicators show stocks, property and other investments at or near record highs.
1: In the last few weeks, we've started to see some falls in markets. Could this be the start of the bubble bursting? And then later in the show, I ask the dumb question of the week. Is China communist or capitalist? All right, so let's get into it. During the pandemic, we've seen an enormous rally in almost all asset classes, and it's got everyone talking. Are we in a bubble? Now, to answer that question, maybe, Ramin, we should first clarify, what do we mean when we say a bubble?
0: It's almost become a science. You know, people are studying bubbleology, you could call it. (laughs) But the idea is that you have a certain fundamental value for a particular stock or index, and it means that the actual price is far above that fundamental value.
1: And I guess the other implication of it being a bubble is that bubbles pop, and that's painful.
0: That's right. Eventually, it's got to end and it usually ends painfully. But I think this is a difficult topic because it encourages a kind of behavior which isn't helpful.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: The thing is, if you're waiting for a bubble to pop, then firstly, it stops you from investing, which is usually, in fact, almost always a bad idea. So many people I speak to say, look, valuations are very high. I'm not going to put money into the equity market. But of course, valuations can stay high for decades.
1: So it's not a great signal or predictor is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, you can say valuations are high, but they stay there for a long time. And you're locked out of markets because you're scared of putting money in because you think the bubble's going to pop. So
1: never play the waiting game.
0: Well, yeah, because it's probably going to hurt you in the long run.
1: And so you say valuations are high. Maybe let's dig into that a little bit. So how do you actually measure something like that?
0: Well, the standard way of doing it is for things which generate cash flows. So let's say you own a company, and obviously it produces sprockets, because we love sprockets. (laughs) And you get a certain revenue stream from that manufacturing process. And that's going to stretch on into the future, presumably forever.
1: Yeah, people are never going to not need sprockets, are they?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a critical part of our lives. So the question is, how much are you willing to pay for that infinite stream of profits in the future? And the fact is that you can actually put a price on it by doing something called discounted cash flow analysis.
1: Oh man, we're going full nerd early today. <laughs> well, braces are, I mean, it's not that complicated. The
0: idea is that you have something called a risk-free rate and that produces a value for a cash flow in the future. The further in the future you are, the less the cash flow is worth.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So if you were going to give me money in 10 years time, you know, I'd rather in two years time. So I'm going to value the two-year money higher than the 10-year money.
0: Exactly. But if you think about interest rates being higher, then that makes the value of future money less because you could invest that money at a risk-free rate and make quite a lot of profit, even without putting it into a risky venture.
1: So if interest rates are going up, you want the money even sooner. Exactly.
0: The point is that you can actually value that stream of cash flows to work out its value today. That's called its present value. Now, anything which generates cash flows can be valued in this way. It could be a company. It could be royalties. So for example, David Bowie famously monetized all of his future royalty payments by issuing a bond which he sold into the market.
1: Yeah, Bowie bonds. I used to work in the music industry and do these kind of discount cash flow models on royalties. It's not a fun job.
0: (laughs) But but the idea is a very simple one, and it only works for things which do generate cash flows. So for example, for gold, which doesn't generate cash flows, if you own gold, it actually costs to store it. That is very difficult to value because discounted cash flow analysis just doesn't work. There's a similar story for cryptocurrency, which is that it doesn't generate a stream of cash flows, so you can't really value it.
1: So if we talk about the things that do have cash flows, so the stock market, are there sort of standardised measures we can look at for the broad market?
0: There many and all rely to some extent on these cash flows. But another way to look at it is to look at the price to earnings multiple. So again, what we're comparing the price with is future profits. So earnings, profits, same thing. And the question is, how many dollars are you willing to pay for every dollar of profit? And that varies a lot over time. It kind of mean reverts. That's the important thing. Whereas equity prices go up and up and up forever, they're driven higher by profits. So if profits double, there's no reason why the price of the stock shouldn't double. But valuation, which is the ratio of price to earnings, goes back to its long-term average. And that's what's really useful. That's what lets you see when valuations are particularly high.
1: And when we say valuations are high, what we effectively mean our stocks are expensive?
0: Yeah, and this is why Warren Buffett talks about Mr. Market, because exactly the same dollar of profit generates very high prices during periods of exuberance, but that same profit generates very low multiple and low prices during periods of market depression. So that's why this valuation, if you look at the price to earnings multiple for the S&P, say, currently is 21.1. And that's at very high levels relative to history. People are willing to pay that much more for profit today than they were, say, in 2008
1: what were they willing to pay in 2008? Eight times multiple. Oh, so we've got a long way to fall if we have a big <laughs> crash. <laughs>
0: well, it's more than 60% below we, where we'd be today.
1: That was the second biggest crash in history, right? What's a more normal level of a price to earnings multiple?
0: Well, 15 times would be the kind of long term average for the S&P, for example. Right. And currently we're at 21 times. So this is another reason why the valuation is useful, because it tells you if all the exuberance dissipates and we go back to fair value, how far could we fall before fundamentals kick in?
1: And when you say fundamentals kick in, you just mean that's a sort of rational level to pay for those future cash flows.
0: Yeah, so if, for example, we go back to the latest five-year average for the forward price to earnings multiple for the S&P. And I should also say that the forward price to earnings is also important because if we're dividing by profit, the question is, which profit do you divide by? The forecast profit for the year ahead, that's forward PE. Trailing PE is you look back 12 months to see what profits have been generated over that 12 month period looking backwards.
1: Presumably, if we're doing it based on the forward PE, then we're sort of relying on educated guesses.
0: Yeah, these are broker forecasts. And what I do like about that is that it kind of prices in a lot of optimism, but also everything that people know about markets. So when they make those forecasts, the brokers will be thinking, well, you know, I know what's going to happen to interest rates roughly, so I'll factor that in. I spoke to the management last week and they were pretty optimistic, so I'll factor that in. So all forward information is kind of priced in, in a bottom-up way. So that's why I think forward P makes sense, because equity markets are forward-looking. So if we use that that measure, the five-year average of the forward PE would mean that we'd fall about 14% from the all-time high of the S&P, which we pretty much reached at the beginning of the year. If we look at the 10-year average, that's not so high because gradually the forward price-to-earnings ratio has been grinding upwards over the last decade. And if we look at that 10-year average, we've got 22% to fall from that high. And if we fall to a multiple of 15 times, which is a 60-year average, then we have about 30% to fall till we get to fair value.
1: And we've already fallen about 10 10- 10%. Is that right?
0: That's right. A little bit less because we had a bit of a rally yesterday. I should say this is the 25th of January. I, th- I think that's why this valuation thing is useful. It puts a ground on how far markets can fall, but it also tells you if you're about to bag a bargain rather than you know, paying an egregiously high amount of money for something, which probably will reduce your return in the future.
1: And you said there were multiple ways of looking at valuation. So that is that the one you prefer?
0: Yeah, I like the profits focus because ultimately that's what drives price is higher. But there are many other things you can divide by. So book value is another, which is a kind of accounting measure of the worth of a company. Another one is free cash flow. So there are various denominators which you can use in these price to earnings or price to something multiples. But the standard one is price to forward earnings.
1: And I've heard of a more sort of broad based indicator, which is referred to as the Buffett indicator, which kind of just looks at the size of the total stock market versus the size of the economy measured by GDP and says, you know, is the stock market Getting ahead of itself.
0: Yeah, because you don't want a stock market being, say, 10 times bigger than the entire economy of the country in which it's in. The criticism of that is that if the US is exporting across the world, then in theory, you could have a stock market which is much bigger than GDP if it's feeding a global economy. So some people think you should actually use the entire global economy as a denominator. But anyway, you look at it, this does set some kind of sustainable cap on how big the stock market.
1: And do all these different indicators tend to agree that we're at elevated valuations and it's potentially bubbly?
0: Yeah. So, for example, if we look at the Buffett indicator right now, it's currently at about 200%, which means that the US equity market's about twice the value of GDP. So that's very high by historical standards. If we look back over history, the last time it was this high was around 2000, just before the dot-com bubble burst. Oh, good.
1: That's good news, isn't it?
0: (laughs) But then there's another interesting period, which is between 1955 and 1970. During that period, this was hugely overvalued, this Buffett indicator, and it stayed there for a very long time. So that's why I think, you know, these bubbles, fine, it was high for a long period of time, but it didn't tell you when to sell, for example.
1: I mean, I think it's pretty well accepted that timing markets is more or less impossible.
0: And this comes back to my original point, which is that bubbles and these valuation measures encourage you to to hold back from the market when you shouldn't.
1: This week we've seen an article from Jeremy Grantham which has gone a little bit viral where he has predicted what he calls the super bubble. Now he's someone maybe to listen to because he has forecast bubbles in the past such as the great financial crisis. It's a really good article and it kind of is the archetypal bear case so I'd go and read it. But what he says is that there's been four super bubbles in the last hundred years. So the US in 1929, the Great Depression, the 2000 dot com bubble and then the Japanese bubble of 1989. What his article says is basically four points. There's a simultaneous bubble across asset classes, including real estate. Number two, we've got crazy investor behavior. So we've seen that you know, meme stocks, cryptocurrencies, NFTs. Number three, we've got the lowest interest rates in history. And number four, we're now seeing high commodity prices driving inflation. He says all this combined is a super bubble.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of those points are valid. And I think particularly the exuberance is probably the most important of those factors, because you could have a lot of favorable factors which would tend to push prices up. But if you don't have the exuberance, then you're not going to get crazy valuations. But I think what happens generally is during these bubbles, people pile into the market because they're drawn in by high returns. But then what we see is that we start to get weaker returns. And then people start to capitulate when they say, well, you know, I made incredible returns over the last year, but look at my stock now, it's down 10%. I'm going to step back from the market.
1: I mean, 10% would be lucky if you're in any stocks right now. If you're in any (laughs) of the tech stocks, you're down 60%. I think it was almost inevitable we were going to launch a show called Many Happy Returns and the market was going to tank. There was no way that wasn't going to happen. And if we look across the world at all the different stock markets, is everything equally expensive?
0: So certainly that's not true. In the US, clearly, we're in a very high valuation state. But Japan, compared to its history, is at fairly low valuations. If you use something like CAPE, which is Robert Schiller's measure of value. So the CAPE measure looks at the price of the market, just like the forward P, but you divide by the earnings, the profits, over an entire 10-year
1: cycle. And it's it's... It's backward looking. So it smooths out any sort of peaks and troughs in the earnings of a company.
0: That's right, because it smooths over a whole decade. Now, at the moment, that's showing that valuations are very high indeed. And using that measure, Japan looks pretty cheap. Poland, Singapore, Turkey, China, all of these countries look relatively cheap. Whereas the Netherlands, USA, India, Switzerland, all look quite expensive. And the UK is roughly in the middle. So so for example, the UK has been cheaper than it is today by that measure, about 62% of the time. Whereas the USA has been cheaper 91% of the time. So these are very high valuations for some of these countries. And the Netherlands, it's only been cheaper of the time. What's going on with the Dutch? I know, I know the market's on fire there. India too, you know, we've had incredible returns. Again, I think retail investors have driven a lot of those rises.
1: I read that one sign of a potential market crash coming is a lot of retail investors piling into the market.
0: Well, the apocryphal story is the one about the shoeshine boy. So (laughs) the story is that Jack Kennedy's father actually had his shoeshine boy giving him stock tips. And he realised at that point that the market was exuberant and he sold all of his stocks. And this is just before the big 1929 crash.
1: I think that was probably a cover for some sort of inside information. (laughs) Not that that would go on today in the Senate, of course.
0: No, of course not. But I think the equivalent today is... Is just look on social media or TikTok, and the amount of content about stocks is just huge. So that's the equivalent of the shoeshine boy today, I think.
1: And so we know that some countries are more expensive than others. And what about sectors? Are there particular kinds of companies which are expensive and cheap?
0: Well, the real growth that we saw during the pandemania was when small cap growth stocks surged upwards in value. And in fact, if you look at Kathy Wood's fund, K, that's got a very high correlation with small cap growth. And exactly those stocks are the ones which have now sold off since around February last year was the turnaround point. So February 2021 that surge suddenly reversed very rapidly. And it smashed ArcK, And it also hurt many new investors who are buying these kind of growthy stocks, which were disruptive.
1: I think if you look on things like social media, that's what a lot of people are feeling because they didn't have the broad diversification of an index fund and they piled into these sort of trendy sectors.
0: Yes. And of course, we're happy to welcome those people into our fold <laughs> yeah, as long-term investors. Sanity. That's right. <laughs> well, sometimes people tell me they watch me in order to cure them when they watch someone like Ray Dalio saying that cash is about to crash. They watch me to calm them down.
1: Yeah, you once said to me that your selling point is that you're boring. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't think is true. You're just sort of sensible and... Calm, I think. Yeah, you don't go in for hyperbole.
0: (laughs) But I I think having a focus on fundamentals, diversification, thinking long term, all of that's quite valuable for your core investments. You know, you can have fun with a little fun portfolio, but you shouldn't be taking too much risk with your core investments. I think that's generally a bad idea.
1: For the sake of argument, let's say we are in a bubble.
0: What might cause it to pop? So I think with many bubbles, you don't realise it's popped until long after the event. When you're actually in the thick of it, you don't know whether this is a 10% sell-off, which is just going to snap back to a rally.
1: Yeah, I've heard it said that that's why market timing is so hard because you've got to be right twice. You've got to sell at the top and then buy at the bottom and you don't know where the bottom is.
0: Yep, nobody rings a bell to say this is now the bottom of the market. But that's why I think valuations are useful because it tells you, well, might not be the bottom, but at least it's cheap. So I think the triggers for a sell-off would be something like a change in interest rates.
1: Well, that's coming.
0: Yeah. So we're going to get three or eight hikes in 2022, maybe more. When that happens, people are less willing to invest in speculative things. Because if you can earn, say, 3%, 4% by just lending money to the US government, then there's a much higher threshold for things to generate a high revenue and high returns. And more speculative things tend to have the valuations fall. And then the other thing is, if we have some kind of geopolitical crisis. So for example, example, war. Many people are worried about what's happening with Ukraine, what's happening between China and Taiwan, for example. And of course, this might happen simultaneously. And so a lot of this euphoria depends on geopolitical stability, which is something we've enjoyed for a long period of time. If you look back over previous historic periods, we've actually had a very peaceful period over the last 30, 40, 50 years for much of the world.
1: Yeah, it seems weird saying it, doesn't it? Because you always feel, oh, there's wars going on. But I guess, you know, compared to the world wars, and then the early stages of the Cold War, it has been incredibly peaceful.
0: Yeah, and we, we, we kind of take that for granted, because it's something many of us have lived with for our entire lives. But I think that can turn very quickly. But, you know, geopolitics is almost unpredictable. And then, of course, we've also got the possibility that earnings could disappoint. As we said, earnings are ultimately what drives stocks higher. And if earnings start to collapse for whatever reason, or not be as strong as people expected, even...
1: Yeah, so that's the flaw in that sort of forward-looking P.E. ratio, isn't it? its It's Based on estimation.
0: That's right. And brokers are always optimistic. Another possibility is that inflation does stay high for a long period of time. Now, if you look back in history, when we see inflation at, say, 7%, that's usually a catastrophe for equity. We get a big derating; rating The price to earnings multiple falls very sharply.
1: So that's a big risk. And we did a whole episode on that last week. So go and have a listen to last week's episode if you haven't heard it already. Which I'm sure you have. Everyone's heard it now. <laughs> <laughs> And is there a situation where the bubble effectively doesn't pop, it either gets deflated very slowly with a market that goes sideways for a long time, or earnings just rise so it's no longer a bubble and everything becomes fairly valued on the upside?
0: Yeah, I mean, the kind of Goldilocks scenario would be one where the price to earnings multiple falls because earnings are growing very strongly. This is pretty much what we saw actually since the pandemic, which is that price growth wasn't that high after we got the initial euphoria. but earnings growth has been very strong.
1: So the multiple comes down, but for a good reason.
0: Yeah, because fundamentals catch up with where the prices are.
1: Do we basically see the market price for perfection? So we're going to avoid the wars We're going to avoid the inflation. We're going to avoid taper tantrums around interest rates and withdrawal of money supply. Are we just like, if everything goes right, we would just see average growth. But if everything goes wrong, we'll see a big crash.
0: Well, it depends on the market you look at. So, for example, Russia has sold off a lot for obvious reasons, and that's looking pretty cheap. Same for Turkey.
1: (laughs) Right. I mean, it's cheap, but I don't know that I would pile in there.
0: You'd have to have <laughs> a very contrarian mindset to do that. But China, for example, many people are piling into China because they see valuations at low levels and you know they think that's a huge opportunity. So I think the US is priced to perfection. You know, 21 times multiple in the midst of seven percent inflation, a Fed hiking into fairly weak growth and potential geopolitical issues is pretty
1: optimistic. And so how, as investors, can we sort of protect ourselves against the bubble? I mean, the usual answer I hear to pretty much every question of how should investors behave is diversification. Is that the case here?
0: I think so, I think that's part of it. Also have a clear idea about how much risk you want to take because the fact is that with equity, you get these crashes. It's not a bug, it's a feature. If you don't like it, don't buy equity.
1: I mean, that's presumably why equity gives you a good long-term return. If it didn't have crashes and it was steady growth, everyone would be in it and there would be no sort of premium for it over bonds. I mean,
0: that's one one of the reasons why people call investing harvesting risk premium.
1: Yeah, I can't move for people calling it harvesting risk premium.
0: Well, <laughs> it is a bit like being a kind of risk farmer. You know, you take your capital, which is like your seeds, you put them at risk, you plant them in the ground, and there's a risk that you'll lose. You know, the crows might come and take the seed or you could have a disastrous weather event. But most of the time you generate a big crop. So some risk premium are higher because you have a higher risk if you've got your capital and you put it into a risky market a very risky market you demand that the return should be high as an investor but the risk of loss of course is also greater so this risk versus return relationship is fundamental fundamental to investing
1: so in terms of investors looking at how much risk they can really stomach are there techniques for that so i know that every month when i look at you know my finances i have a column which is you know the net worth and then i have a column next to it which basically half the equity value and i try to look at it for about 10 seconds each month and imagine okay that's my actual worth now
0: which is a good way to approach it. I think time is the other really important factor here. For example, if you look at bonds and you invest a dollar, say, into a bond fund, the risk of that not achieving, say, a 10% annual return is extremely high because bonds generally generate very small returns. Whereas for equity, the risk of underperformance over a long period of time is quite low. So that's why over a long period of time, you can effectively look through the volatility. So risk really depends on your investment horizon. Long periods of time, equity is probably a fairly low risk investment as long as it's diversified.
1: And when you say diversified you presumably mean around the globe because I know there are markets which have crashed and then never recovered.
0: Yeah many of them in fact you know you do get 100% losses for example if an entire society fails or switches to a political system where they no longer have an equity market.
1: I mean or, or just Japan right where it dropped say 60% in that bubble that we talked about earlier and then it's just bounced around at that level for more or less 30 years.
0: But there are many other markets which have been in drawdown for decades. Greece, for example, has had a pretty catastrophic drawdown, which has taken many years for it to recover from, and it still hasn't recovered. Japan's another, as you say. Italy. Italy's another. Spain's another.
1: So is this why you know we hear so many people say go for the sort of global equity fund where so you don't have to gamble on any specific region or country.
0: That's right I mean the proviso at the moment is that that's roughly 55% US or 55 maybe 60% so that's the concentration risk that we see now so I still think that's a sensible thing to do because it is diversified the US is big for a reason which is that it's very successful at growing earnings and returning big profits to shareholders and that's likely to
1: continue I think. And is the the main lesson heading into a potential crash at any time is do not panic sell when the market falls.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's the worst possible thing you can do is to panic. So tempting though. (laughs) It is very tempting. Well, it's just human nature that if you're in pain, you kind of withdraw from the stimulus which is causing it. But what's really odd about investing is you have to embrace that pain as it's at its worst point. And that's why I think people are running away from the sale because it hurts. You know, they've already got some money invested. They see the loss And the immediate response is to say, stop the pain.
1: But then the long-term pain is multiplied (laughs) massively.
0: I think the other way to look at this is if we're at the peak of a very long rally, generally the returns tend to be lower when valuations are high. So I think it would actually be healthy for markets to fall significantly because remember that many people are drip feeding into the market. That's how most of us invest. We're continually earning, we're continually saving. And for every dollar or pound that we invest today, we want to invest it at a low multiple, ideally, to get the greatest possible return.
1: Yeah, that's the kind of counterintuitive thing, isn't it? You almost, if you're putting money into the market, market on a regular basis, you should really welcome the drops in the stock prices because you're getting more stocks for your money.
0: Exactly. It's just like house prices. You know, if you're a first-time buyer and many people every month are a first-time buyer of new equity, then you want prices to be low.
1: So the people really at risk then are the ones on the verge of retirement who are going to be drawing on their portfolios rather than putting money into the market. That's when a crash becomes super painful.
0: That's right. And that's why people talk about sequencing risk, because if you make a crystallised loss at the beginning of retirement, it has a massive impact on the period of time for which your money lasts so many of the pension crafters that's what we discuss you know what do you do in early retirement to mitigate the possibility of that sequencing risk now for pension craft members i produce members only videos on particular topics so for example valuations a common one china is another one that many people ask about as members of the community and as a member you get exclusive access to those videos And if you want to learn more about how to join us, just go to PensionCraft.com. You'll see links on how to join our membership.
1: So each week I ask a dumb question. And this week it is, is China a communist or a capitalist country? So if we think about it over the last 30 years, say, the rise of China has arguably been the biggest story in economics. So their GDP grew from $150 billion in 1978 to $14 trillion in 2020. The World Bank says that's the fastest economic expansion in history and 850 million people have been lifted out of poverty. Communists or capitalists?
0: Well, socialists, certainly. I think many people misunderstand this, which is that socialism, which is what Russia describes itself as, or at least it used to, And what China describes itself as is socialism with Chinese characteristics.
1: That's their description. Such a snappy title they've gone for there.
0: Yeah, and there's a book. You can actually read the book by President Xi. I won't, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) The kids in school have to, unfortunately, for them. But the idea is that it's not really communism. This is a kind of transition state to communism, which the Chinese Communist Party is trying to usher
1: in. Sure. So on the communist side of the argument, it is a one-party state and 8% of China's population are members of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, it is in the name, right? The Chinese Communist Party, even if you're saying they're not communist yet.
0: The party's communist, but the state is socialist, yeah. Oh, nice. But a lot of the tick boxes for communism is just not there. So not allowing any private property, for example, having really heavy progressive taxation, not there, and having no inheritance rights... Clearly, that's not the case. And credit is solely created by the state bank with state capital. Clearly, that's not there. Yeah. So I think a lot of the tick boxes for communism just don't apply to China. But on the other hand, many of the flexibilities which they've allowed have created the possibility of that incredible growth. So when they diverge from Russia, which pretty much happened in 1960 in terms of policy, they deliberately decided to go for global trade, and that was where they focused their economy. And that's just been incredibly successful for them. So communist, I think probably not, but recently we've seen certain behaviors which have shown us that China is ultimately not a Western
1: democracy. No, I mean, it's certainly an authoritarian or totalitarian state.
0: So for example, the policies which have effectively scuppered their own equity market are the things like saying that the tutoring market, the after-school tutoring market, is going to be not-for-profit. not, pr- not for profit. So an entire industry overnight became essentially non-profitable.
1: And you can't imagine that really happening in the US, say?
0: It would never happen because free markets are almost like a kind of religion in the US. And the equity market is considered to be very important, whereas I think the equity market in China is kind of secondary to political goals and ideology. And I think there's more of a focus on the welfare of citizens, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, or at least some citizens, I should say. I don't want to do a chamath.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's be careful what we say. I mean, our social credit score is going to go down, whatever we say for this segment. Yeah.
0: So, for example, the clampdown on tech companies has had a huge, devastating effect on their equity market. So, companies like Alibaba, Tencent, they have essentially driven down the entire equity market in China. So that was kind of counterproductive, I think.
1: I've heard China described as state capitalism, whereby it sort of sees a vast range of industries as strategic, and it kind of controls businesses as an arm of its state power.
0: And I think it has allowed certain leeways, but essentially, every now and then it's going to step in and say, no, remember that we're in charge. If Say, for example, property speculation gets too overheated, they're going to step in with their three red lines and say, look, you can't have too much leverage and there are certain restraints you should have to put in place. But I think there are also kind of initiatives which are really interesting, things like focusing on AI, quantum computing, semiconductors, things they call frontier tech. That's essentially going to drive a lot of growth in the future.
1: I think we can say that the state certainly directs capital more actively than in Western economies. And I read that the the Chinese state is involved directly in around a third of private companies in China, often controlling something like a golden share, where they have a small ownership stake but can appoint board members and be a backseat driver.
0: So state-owned enterprises used to do really badly before these clampdowns. But of course, now the state-owned enterprises are the ones which are obviously in favor with the state and aligned with their goals. So maybe we'll see a turnaround in that as well. But I think I think it's pretty clear that the Chinese government is going to clamp down on any company which runs counter to its goals. And so it's worthwhile understanding what those goals are with this Frontier Tech Initiative, because those are probably the the companies and the sectors which are going to prosper.
1: I think the other point is that it's a sprawling bureaucracy in China, and it doesn't necessarily speak with one voice. So we've got a central bank, we've got entry trust regulators, the Securities Commission, and they all are trying to meet the goals of the state, but pull in slightly different directions sometimes. So like you said, on on China banning the private tutoring and it banned Didi's uh, ride hailing app and that had a you know catastrophic effect on those markets and then subsequent to that their securities commission tried to sort of step in and reassure foreign investors that this wasn't going to happen to you know every industry in China so don't pull your money out
0: yeah after the market had sold off at that yeah. point it was pretty much too late so you're right I think in the US this is something we'd never see this is not a kind of cuddly friendly democracy this is very much a state which is in control of its economy and its markets and at some point that's just going to run foul of equity. So this is why I think it's still worthwhile being cautious for Western investors to invest in China. And you can see why you get these indices like the Freedom Index in the US, the Freedom ETF, which deliberately goes for countries and companies which promote the ideals of freedom. And obviously, China doesn't score very well in no. particular on those scores.
1: So in summary, as I expected, the answer is somewhere in between the two.
0: Yeah, I don't think it, I think it kind of defies classification. It is sui generis. You can't really say China is communist or it's certainly not capitalist.
1: No. I mean, when it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, it was sort of specially recognised as a non-market economy and allowed to join anyway.
0: Yeah, that was very odd as a decision, but it was a very good decision as it turned out for China and for many of its trade partners. So, you know, Australia hasn't seen a recession for decades because of its relationship with China.
1: They've fallen out now though.
0: Yeah, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> but, but not economically. Australia can't afford to fall out with China, certainly over the long term. It's just so, so important as a trading partner.
1: Thanks so much for listening to
0: Many Happy Returns. And thank you to everyone who took the time to rate or review the show last week, and for all your kind comments.
1: If you enjoyed this week's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick rating or review, wherever you listen. That would be great. It really helps us. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Ramin Akiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.